another episode of Rocky Mountain Surgery. We have a special episode for you this week. Uh, we are in Austin, Texas for Surgical Education Week. I'm here with Allie, and we have Dr. Mark Naylor with us, who's our program director. He's been on the show before. We have Dr. Heather Carmichael, who's one of our co-residents. And we have Dr. Jayswal as well, who's uh, the associate program director, as well as uh, one of our breast oncologists at Denver Health. So to get started, uh, a little bit about Surgical Education Week. So this is kind of a combination of two weeks. Maybe you want to explain it a bit better, Dr. Naylor, because I'm somewhat new to the format. Uh, sure. But it's basically a combination of the associate pro- or the, sorry, the program director's meeting and the uh, program coordinator's meeting. Is that correct? That's correct. So there is basically two parts to Surgical Education Week. Uh, one is the Association of uh, Surgical Educators, uh, and that is focused a bit more towards medical students and clerkship, but also involves residency, and uh, and so that's a sort of a, a different organization. And then a more mm, focused organization on residency is the Association of, Association of Program Directors in Surgery, which comprises, you know, depending on the year, either the first or the second part of the week uh, with a little bit of overlap. And then there's also a, a meeting for the coordinators that happens at the same time as the program director meeting. So it's a week-long event. There's a lot of uh, people in education from all over the country. It's nice because it's a small enough group that we can essentially go to almost any city in the country, and we so visit a lot of different places, including Austin this week. So to start, maybe we could go around and say what have been some moments or topics that really stood out for us. Dr. Jayswal, do you want to start? Sure. I really enjoyed the presidential address that just happened um, at the Association of Program Directors, and it really talked about looking at oneself and how to better deal with difficult situations and and talked about how to um, counsel residents who are facing those same sorts of issues and perhaps having those coffee moments as we as I've had many of them with various residents, maybe not the right answer and maybe trying to find a way for a physician, a resident, or another attending to be introspective is the way to start. And that was a, an amazing part of that discussion. Yeah, we greatly enjoyed that as well. So to summarize very briefly, it was a talk about, and it was actually fairly personal from the from the president of the association about some of his dealings with uh, interpersonal conflicts and trying to develop the emotional intelligence on how to handle difficult situations when it comes to first your emotional response to an outcome, but then also the other emotional responses that are going on around you. Are there any moments that stood out with uh, with you? Sure, yeah. I think one of the great things about this meeting has been the chance to collaborate with people at our own institution and think about uh, what we've been hearing at the meeting and past moving forward, particularly on a couple of projects involving sort of uh, cert- education of the residents um, so that they can be uh, better educators and teachers of medical students and younger residents and how to formalize that into a pathway for residents who have an interest in education. And then the other is sort of working on some of our mentoring and um, resident well-being activities at our residency program and how we can improve that and so bringing some of the ideas of the meeting back home. One of the things I always enjoy about the Surgical Education Week is um, some of their keynote speakers. They tend to be from different disciplines, and uh, so we had a speaker from the Culinary Institute of America talk, Uh, and there's a lot of overlaps, I think, between being a chef and being a surgeon, Uh, and that was an extremely valuable talk. He talked about uh, mise en place, which is basically keeping your mind clear and keeping your workspace clean, 
so that you can do complicated things without uh, clutter in both areas. And I thought that was uh, incredibly valuable insight. Last year, there was uh, a senior executive from Disney who talked about customer satisfaction and how to make a huge organization still feel like a small bed and breakfast with the way that they treat people and the special touches and how they manage the culture within their industry and things. So there's always some takeaway. So those are, tend to be the highlights. Uh, there's also a, a, you know, a number of papers and different ideas. It tends to be more of a show-and-tell meeting where you know there's some statistics, but really it's how we do things and sharing ideas with uh, different groups that you could potentially incorporate into your own program. Allie, what about you? You know, just to piggyback on what Dr. Jace Wall said, I think that one of the great things about the keynote address where we were talking about how to really deal with conflict resolution on a day-to-day basis, we work in a high-stress environment, and the stakes are real. They are people. And one of the things that I think is really interesting from the presentation is that He showed some data where um, one of his previous partners did a study looking at events where residents had been written up for their behavior on the floor, and generally, the results of her uh, inquiry showed that there was a clinical situation and that what the resident was advocating for was clinically correct, but basically because they had blown up the person was never disciplined who made the clinical error. Things were never taken care of. The only person who really received a lot of retribution out of the situation was the resident, and the care of the patient was never really improved by losing your cool. And so I think he gave a lot of good pointers, like slowing down. When you come into the room, don't come in with guns blazing. Ask everybody what their name is in the situation and say, okay, we're going to get through this. Because honestly, the thing that matters is that the patient gets taken care of well. And it doesn't really matter who screws up. That if As long as you keep your cool, that can actually get addressed in the end instead of you getting sent to you know the principal's office for blowing up. So I thought that that was a good thing. And then I think one of the next things that I thought was great was the panel discussion or the duel, basically. But... <laughs> between two different groups talking about residency attrition and how should we change our selection process. And so I think that the sides were basically saying we need more data to select our residents during recruitment or things are going okay and we can accept the 20% attrition rate and that's just kind of part of Uh, the job of selecting residents for this tough career in surgery. So what did you guys think about that discussion? That discussion actually would have been my highlight of this this conference so far because I think it kind of represents what the impetus for this podcast was in the first place because there there are likely several factors for why uh, residents uh, end up leaving a program and they talked about that on the both the pros and the cons side and the answer is no one really has great science that suggests one way or the other, but I think a part of it is, and they discuss this, is finding the right fit for residents and trying to identify that early on, which is very challenging with the current interview process and match process because you're visiting programs for 24 hours. You have an opportunity to maybe do one or two away rotations where you get to know the program better than other programs, but still it's 
that's such a limited number compared to the number of programs you're going to apply to and ultimately interview at. Uh, and so that brings us to the idea of this podcast where we try and give you an idea of, first off, what is surgery really like? Because it is different than what you do as a medical student. Medical student experiences differ not only on what rotation you are within a medical institution, but even at different institutions. And so Allie and Heather and I have been talking this week, you know, what our experiences were at different medical schools, and they were quite different. And I think it's not that some were lacking. They are all just had their advantages and disadvantages, but that may give one person a good idea of what surgery is, but a different experience to another person. And so the goal of this podcast really was to try and bridge at least some of that gap, at least for our institution, when it comes to identifying, A, if surgery is right for you and whether, you know, what is CU Department of Surgery like? So that really spoke to me. And then I also enjoyed the presidential address. This conference, it kind of encapsulates the difference between this conference and other conferences where other conferences, the data presented is very clinical based or or basic science based that relates to hard data and, and can have major implications on how you practice. Whereas this is more about how we as physicians utilize these tools that we're getting at other conferences in the best manner, whether that's in education or whether that's how we interact with allied health providers or other providers within the healthcare community. And it's not just a matter of having the data in your at your hands. It's also about how you present that data on a day-to-day basis to the patient, to the nursing staff, to everyone involved. Uh, that's a huge part as well. And you have to be able to do all these things. Uh, so it's been a it's been a great conference. I've, I also found the debate really interesting. Um, and there there actually was a recent paper in JAXA, I believe, that looked at resident attrition and essentially had the conclusion that um, a lot of resident attrition is driven by uh, incomplete or inappropriate expectations uh, of residents who came into programs. And so I really commend you, uh, Allie and Jason, for creating this podcast with that goal in mind. Well, it's it's a national debate and it's been going on for a while. And we actually participated, I believe, in that survey paper in a I don't think you can have a situation where attrition is zero. Uh, I, I think that's unrealistic given our situation where, you know, this is a very difficult career. It's certainly not a 0% attrition if you look at other demanding disciplines. I mean, even the lead chef of the Institute said 10% of people don't pass the practical to be able to finish their program when you have to actually present a meal in front of somebody, you know, off the off the cuff. So I don't think it's reasonable to expect we're ever going to get to zero. What the right number is? Who knows? You know, I think it's somewhere between 10 to 20 percent, depending. Um, But I do feel that, uh, you know, for us, it's maybe not as big a deal as other programs because we have a large number of prelims. If somebody is, you know, not going to stay, you know, we we have a number of people who are interested and slide in, etc. And if you look at our graduation, you know, we'll have a former prelim pretty much every graduation banquet at least. So I would say ours is roughly 10%. And, uh, you know, we've sort of made that part of the process. You know, I think the the people who have left surgery that have been in our program, it's all been legitimate reasons. And I think it's it's very much the common themes are, I thought operating would make me feel different than when I actually got to operate. So I've heard that a number of times. Like I I'm not as awed by it as I thought it would be, you know. And I think what happens in in medical school is there's nobody who says, "Eh, surgery, that was boring. So everybody's interested, you know, and obviously it's just a matter of, you know, the price you have to pay 
is very high and it's not really clear to you. And you're, you're a medical student and you're often scrubbed in and people are showing you things and you don't really think, I wonder where the intern is because they're nowhere. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, um, that's just part of it. Uh, uh, so I, I think that it's part of the process. I'm not sure we can ever make it to be zero. But I think if you're a smaller program, you know, then it becomes a much bigger deal. You, you, know, you may have to try to recruit people from outside and things like that. And so from a logistics standpoint, it becomes an issue. And every now and then, you know, things don't necessarily happen on one-offs. You know, every now and then you have a wave of attrition. I remember a year we had three people quit at the same time. You know, it was a long time ago. But, you know, that was sort of like, you know, we're going to put a sign on the door, number of days since last resident quit. <laughs> so, uh, but then we went several years without somebody. So, you know, I think that's the other issue. But it's human behavior and, you know, there's a limit to how much you can control it. And I do think things like the podcast and making people understand this is what the career is, is, is helpful. It's never going to 100% prevent it, but I think it gives people more information. And, you know, the way that you've presented the podcast has been, you know, very much, uh, you know, sort of a grassroots, here's some people telling you what it really is sort of thing. Not a bunch of, you know, it's not really an infomercial for surgery. It's much more real world, and, which I think is great. What you find is, again, what we've found from doing the podcast is that everyone's track through surgery ends up being quite different. And you get the sense on paper that we all kind of have the same experience, but in reality, the journey is winding and we all come to the conclusion that surgery works for us for different reasons. And that is the challenge that came up in the debate is how do you identify those, those individuals and maybe some people who aren't going into surgery who could have been great surgeons and would have been interested, but for whatever reason were provided with an inaccurate assessment of what the career would be. And so there's really, there, there's a whole other negative control for this process that, that actually didn't get discussed a lot. I think ultimately the best thing we can do is things like this conference where we talk about these these issues of attrition and talk about what surgery is like from different perspectives, which many of us are working on. Heather is working on that in a number of ways, and some of that's this educational tract that our program is beginning to develop or planning to develop. Uh, but that way, the more different examples you provide or models you provide for people, they can then plan their career path off of that which I think is great because it's going to be a little bit different than for everybody. Not all of us are going to want to do academic medicine for our entire careers. Some of us want to go do the five years and then be practicing general surgeons in the community, which I think is great too. Allie, anything you want to add? No, I was just going to say that it also reminded me of what you were telling me, Heather, about your experience when you were TAing for the anatomy class this year. Yeah. So I uh, had the fortunate opportunity to make a connection with some of the folks in our uh medical school anatomy uh, curriculum course for the first year medical students and uh, have been working with them. And, and this year it was sort of a very informal. Myself and another one of our uh, research residents, Josh Sumislawski, went in um, to that uh, course together for several weeks and uh, just worked with the students. And what was really interesting to me was just the number of questions that I was getting, not about anatomy or anatomical structures and their relationships, but really about what it was to be a surgery resident and uh, my experiences in the surgery department here. So um, I do think that there you know, that medical students, especially early on in their uh, experiences in medical school, don't have a ton of exposure to surgeons. Not a lot of surgeons are uh, sort of actively 
participating in the curriculum at the medical school or giving lectures at the medical school. So it's really not until your third year that you have a chance to really uh, associate with surgeons unless you're specifically seeking that out as an interest. And I know that from my own experience uh, going through um, the application process and um, deciding what I wanted to do during my fourth year, I felt like I was very much behind uh, because I hadn't realized that surgery was a career that interests me and interested me until the very end of my third year when I did my surgery clerkship. And so I felt sort of a sense that I was scrambling um, to figure out that that was actually something I wanted to do. So I think there's a really big opportunity potentially to talk to the uh, younger medical students and give them an exposure to what it can be like to be a surgeon, which also can be done through the podcast. So it reminds me, I went to a a jazz concert at the Botanic Gardens several years ago. And Chris Bodie is a jazz trumpeter who's acclaimed. And he, during the concert, gave credit to his high school music teacher for not letting him quit the wind instruments that are so difficult to master. And, you know, no slam to you, Paul Montero, but apparently harder than, say, playing guitar or bass. Uh, and, uh, and making him pursue it and persist because he saw that he had the skills to do it if he could just get over the hump. And I think that's a lot of what, you know, you're sort of describing is how can we get people who would be really good in this profession to sort of get over the hump of making the commitment to do it? Because, uh, you know, I think there is a tremendous amount of talent out there and, you know, efforts like this is one way. So that would be my plea to you excellent medical students who think you might be interested or maybe have absolutely zero idea is just try and actually find out Um, because I think that that is the first part of the battle. And the more that you know about anything that you're going into, uh, the more educated of a decision you will be making. And I think the less of a chance that you'll regret this giant decision that you make at the end of doing something for six weeks that you're going to do for the rest of your life. So try and meet as many people as you can and have as many experiences as your education and stuff outside of work allow um, while going into your field. So Dr. Naylor and gang, any controversies or diverging opinions have arisen here that you've uh, picked up on? Well, I, I think one thing that is always an underlying theme at this meeting is, you know, the crossover between good ideas and research to standard requirements for everyone. Because many of the things that are now requirements in programs started at a meeting like this where it was a pilot and then became something that was thought to be advantageous. And then suddenly everyone had to somehow fund it and do it. And I think, you know, that's that's one of the key controversies in modern surgical education. How do we allow enough creativity for each program to sort of have an individual flavor and a focus and yet also have enough requirements so that everyone's getting the same education? You know, and, and you have to have requirements because you have to force the issue, not so much maybe even with the surgeons, but with the sponsoring institutions, the hospitals, so that they pay for things, et cetera. You know, if we're going to have ultrasound skill sets in the ER be a big part of our practice. Well, at some point that's going to have to be standardized. We can't have everyone sort of learning it, you know, willy-nilly in various ways. On the other hand, if everything is a requirement, then I think it's very stifling and it doesn't necessarily fit for every last program because they have different issues and different things they want to do. And it also, you know, doesn't allow for creativity. So I would say once again, you know, ultrasound training and 
I think another thing that is a major theme of this meeting is attrition, burnout, behavioral issues. So that, you know, maybe even 10 years ago or five years ago, there was a lot more focus on procedural and technical and how to adopt new things. And we still have some of that with robotic training, et cetera. But I think things have pivoted to how to relate to people better. How do we train people to be leaders? How do we try to not have interactions that are negative? How do we work better as teams? How do we teach people to be more efficient so that economically we can still have a profession? I think there's, you know, those are the things that are coming out in this meeting more and more. And you see panels discussing that. You see more papers addressing it. So to me, it's all good, but that's, that's the underlying theme that I've seen over the years, and it just pivots to different topics. What are some take-home points you think, Dr. Naylor, and, or even actionable plans that we could bring back to Denver or even to other institutions that they may be looking to bring back? You know, like What are the ne next steps for programs after this conference? Well, I think there's some things that we're doing that are on the cutting edge. I mean, an ultrasound training course for learning the FAST exam, for example, and being taught by residents and fellows from a different department. That's something we're doing. I think some of our efforts to, um, you know, put together a nice curriculum for wellness and avoiding burnout and uh, resilience, those are also things that I think are on the cutting edge. Um, I think uh, taking advantage of a clinical site that's remote, you know, something that maybe other programs could do. And then there's things that we're not doing so well. Like, you know, I think the Simple app has a tremendous amount of upside but we have not been able to get it integrated into our program so that people are universally using it. In fact, it's sort of an outlier. And I know during the discussion, other programs got up and said the same thing, that they, they, they see the value in it, but they can't get the faculty and the residents to use it. So, you know, there's still some struggles. Just to explain, will you discuss the Simple app and what it actually is and how it works? Yeah, that's a good, good point. The podcast is pretty like, what is that? <laughs> Uh, so it's a phone app that allows us, with a few touches, to give some feedback to the residents about their level of participation in an operation, their you know performance during an operation, and how difficult the operation was. And then, of course, the residents can also say similar things with regard to their participation. I think you know it's quick, hence the name simple. But it could be quite powerful, especially trending things over time, resident performance, how much a, a various R level gets to do on a rotation working with the same surgeon over the time. And, you know, right now it's a bit of word of mouth, opinion, et cetera, uh, especially in a big program where there's just no way the program director can come around and watch every last operation and get a feel for how much the residents are getting to do and what's appropriate and that sort of thing. And so... You know, it's it's a network nationally, and I think, you know, idealistically, it could do amazing things to revolutionize, revolutionize surgical education, but it's got to be used, and, uh, you know, currently, that's that's where we stand, is that I think some programs have adopted it quite well, and we've spent a lot of effort, myself as well, in grassroots activities, meeting with various rotations and attendings and different R levels, and our penetration and usage of it is pretty small. All right, Dr. Naylor, we are in Austin, so let's cut to the chase here. Let's hear about your opinions of Texas barbecue. And I'll preface this by saying I am from Texas, so go gentle on us, all right? We feel very strongly about our barbecue. So as soon as I got down here, I checked into my hotel, 
And then I immediately found this barbecue place around the block called Cooper's. And I got some brisket and lemonade and then, of course, some white bread and some coleslaw. And I sat down. You mean Texas toast, right? When you say white bread. <laughs> That's right. You mean Texas toast. And it, it was it was it was a spiritual event, to be honest. I mean, unwrapping that and starting to taste it. So there's a lot of good restaurants in Denver. And, and my wife and I will Uber to them and back. And so my suggestion to my wife while I was having this brisket is that we should forego Ubering downtown and we should just take a flight to Austin, participate in this food, and then take a flight back. I mean, it's, it's granted, it's going to increase the cost of the meal somewhat because the flight's more expensive than Uber. But the net gain <laughs> from being able to partake in this level of cuisine is amazing. I also might have texted something along the lines of, I'm going to go on a hunger strike when I go back to Denver until the rest of the U.S. steps up their game and starts making food like this. It's just unbelievable. We just lost uh, any chance of recruiting anyone from Memphis or North Carolina or Kansas City for that matter. But I, <laughs> I guess we'll find other ways to make up for that. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. I think this discussion was great. This conference has been amazing. Dr. Naylor, thank you for having us here at the conference. Thank you for all your support with the podcast. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for coming down. And if you guys have any questions for us over at Rocky Mountain Surgery, please either tweet us on Twitter at RMS Pod. Am I doing that right, Jason? Excellent. Or you can send us an email about any questions you have or ideas for upcoming podcasts. We're always willing to listen. And that's at RMS Podcast at Outlook.com. All right. Thanks, guys. 